Hello and welcome to the Security DNA Podcast produced by SecurityInfoWatch.com. I'm John Dauberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch and the host of this podcast. The editors here at Security InfoWatch utilize this podcast to provide detailed, actionable information of value to security professionals. This will include industry news, trends and analysis, technology solutions, policy risk analysis, and management. For our latest episode, I have with me my colleague, Steve Lasky, who is the editorial director for the security group at Endeavor Business Media. Steve will be talking today with Evan Bernstein, a security volunteer and the CEO and national director of Community Security Service, an American nonprofit organization that provides security to the Jewish community in the United States, primarily through trained community volunteers. The group was founded in 2007. Evan has helped lead its expansion into 15 states and opened new offices in Stanford, New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. While under his leadership, CSS has signed national partnership agreements with the ADL Center on Extremism and the Secure Community Network. He is regularly quoted in local and national news sources that have included CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and Fox News. He often speaks across the United States and abroad about the rise of anti-Semitism and the need for Jewish volunteer security in America. Evan has over 25 years of nonprofit experience, including serving as Vice President of the Northeast Division for the ADL and as the State Director for the AIPAC in Arizona. And with that, let's turn it over to Steve. Evan, I'm really thrilled that uh, you could join us here today. Uh, It's a rather uh, bleak picture for the Jewish community across the world as uh, events in Israel have uh, just scaled on, in, out of proportion. And, and uh, we will get to that for sure. But uh, I want to start the conversation just to kind of put a little context in uh, about what uh, the Community Security Service Organization is. Uh, a little bit about the history and your history with the organization and, you know, why the mission is so important right now. Thank you again, Steve, for having me. I really appreciate it. CSS was founded in 2007 uh, as an organization that was modeled after volunteer security groups that were founded in Europe, South Africa, Latin America, South Africa, and Australia because of what took place after the Holocaust. Um, after there's a thorough distrust for for law enforcement and for police uh, because you saw what took place. The governments turned on the Jewish community, especially in Europe. Uh, you saw law enforcement turn on the Jewish community, and they believed after the Holocaust the best way for them to secure themselves was to train themselves and lead their security and work in conjunction with local law enforcement. And that's been going on now uh, across the globe in Jewish communities uh, since post-Holocaust. The l- only community that really did not embrace that after the Holocaust was the United States. We were really just uh, outsourcing our, our security, really only looking at local law enforcement, private security. And in 2007, uh, two individuals said we needed to replicate what was taking place across the globe and started CSS. And it really maintained itself as a pretty small organization. And I took it over in 2020, and we had about one staff and a budget of $360,000 uh, and about 500 volunteers. Now, fast forward about four years where we, we've grown now to over 3,000 active volunteers around the country. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the offices that you mentioned, we've expanded the partnerships. Our budget has grown uh, more than tenfold. 
And we really now are, I think, making volunteer security in the United States something that is more of a mainstream activity because we know the climate's ramping up. I believe that anti-Semitism has gotten normalized in the United States after what we saw in Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, Colleyville, you name it. We've had so many incidents. And now it's taking place in Gaza and the rhetoric that's rising here in the United States. And we think there's going to be some serious effects from that. Uh, we need to, as Jews, empower ourselves and not just outsource. But it's not us alone. We need to be a force amplifier for local law enforcement and private security. We can't do this on our own. Uh, and I think that's what we, we try to do is work with our partners, but also train our volunteers at a high level so they're doing the best job because no one's going to care more about who's inside that synagogue, whose family and friends are in the synagogue than a volunteer is. And that's really the basis of our mission. You know, you bring up a good point. Uh, I was before the events of, uh, of Saturday and this weekend, uh, I was going to begin our conversations talking about the uh, uh, the recent ADL study about uh, anti-Semitism. And as you stated, the the rise uh, in just the rhetoric, rhetoric and, the, and, the, and the violence. But uh, we've got to address uh, what's happening uh, with Hamas and the attacks on Israel now. Uh, to say that that's not going to change the dynamics is is foolish, because you're already seeing uh, uh, demonstrations uh, and rallies in cities across the country with uh, you know Palestinians and Palestinian sympathizers, and, and most of these people don't even realize what they're um, uh, they're rallying against. Uh, you know when you you rally for Palestinians, it's not the same thing as rallying for Hamas. So I, 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 you know, I want you to kind of explain the difference, but also how you think the events that are, uh, are occurring in, uh, in this attack uh, are going to reverberate across the Jewish community in the U.S. Well, I think, you know, it's the challenge is, yes, the, the, the average Palestinian person uh, is is unfortunately impacted by the, the the terrorist group that is controlling Gaza, which is Hamas. And Hamas is a terrorist organization. In their charter, it's that Israel does not have a right to exist. They're inherently anti-Semitic. And they are, despite as many options, whether it was Israel pulling out of Gaza uh, over a decade ago or other land for peace options, uh, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of options uh, for peace, despite what the Israelis have been able to try to give at numerous times, including to the Palestinian Authority. And, you know, what we've seen, you know, on, on Saturday was just an absolute act of war by a terrorist organization in Hamas that is murdered. We just saw that there was, you know, a kibbutz in Israel that had at least 40 babies killed, some of them beheaded. Uh, we're dealing with a terrorist barbarian organization that, in my mind, is the equivalent of ISIS um, or Al-Qaeda and needs to be seen internationally in the same way. And there is going to be unfortunate casualties that are going to take place from innocent people even in, in Gaza, but that is because of the actions of the group that is controlling uh, Gaza, which is Hamas. And we can't understate that that is a terrorist organization and that we need to, everyone needs to understand that and look at it uh, from that lens. And I think, you know, yes, it's going to reverberate Great. It always has. Every time throughout my career where there's been, you know, conflict between Israel and whether it was Fatah in the West Bank or Hezbollah in Lebanon or uh, Hamas in Gaza, all three are terrorist organizations that believe Israel does not 
have a right to exist and are inherently anti-Semitic, there's always a reverberation around the diaspora, around the globe in Jewish communities. And we've seen that. We've seen that now in Europe at rallies. We've seen it now in the United States at rallies, where rhetoric quickly goes from political rhetoric into anti-Semitic rhetoric. And that's why so often, I would say 99% of the time, when I hear anti-Israel, it's anti-Semitic. Very, very infrequently, almost nil, I've ever seen it where it's really truly been a true political discourse in those contexts. And those things lead to anti-Semitism. What's made things more difficult for the Jewish community is online and the different uh, mediums. Before, when there was incidents, you know, a person could see these things at the local tavern or their, to their friends and it wouldn't go anywhere. Now they can go right on Twitter or Facebook and spew their venom and spew their lies and, and have tens of thousands of people agreeing with them that creates a, 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 real, a real wave of hate towards minority groups, in, in this case, the, the Jewish community. And we've certainly seen that with the FBI numbers, you know, with 60% of all religiously motivated hate crimes in the United States being towards Jews, and Jews are such a small minority of the religious population, religious minority population, uh, it's, it's disproportionate. And we think a lot of that is because the, the numbers of people that hate Jews just have the ability to spew their venom and be able to do it in a way to rile people up. And if you look at the major acts of hate that have taken place towards the Jewish community over the last 10 years, they're lone wolves. And a lot of those people have been proven to have been, to been radicalized online as a lone wolf. Very hard for police or law enforcement to track. And they get they get aggravated. Those people get ramped up online and they actually go and do something. They're not part of necessarily any one formal group per se. And uh, it's a very big concern. And I think we have to keep our eyes open. We met with our volunteers this week to give them an update on where things are at. And we're expecting things uh, to get worse, not better uh, as this war. And it's a war, uh, not just a conflict. will continue on, we think, for the weeks ahead while the Israelis have to have a counteroffensive in, in, in Gaza. You know that you made a you make a great point, uh, Evan, about the, uh, the 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 rhetoric issues here, and it's it's interesting that anti-Semitism in the U.S. went up very little during the other wars in Israeli history in 1967 and 73 during the Palestinian uprisings in the 80s and 2000s. Uh, the the uptick in anti-Semitism was like you said, it was either localized. Uh, or just neutralized by uh, just the sheer vastness of, of, of other news coverage. Uh, is the culprit the ubiquitous social media outlets that, that are spreading misinformation and inflammatory rhetoric? I, I think it's a huge part of it. I think you still have people that are inherently anti-Semitic. If you look at the EDL studies in the 60s, you know, close to 30% of the American population would be considered anti-Semitic. And if you look at the numbers now, studies is down to 12 to 14 percent which on its looking just at the numbers looks like a huge win uh but you're still dealing with over 30 million americans that are have anti-semitic tendencies and those 30 million now have outlets that they didn't have in the 60s so i think that's where it plays is that the the, the number may be smaller but their but their voice is more amplified and i think you're you and i think as the moderate middle in this country and across the globe is disappearing and you're seeing more radicalized right and a radicalized left. Those kinds of rhetoric online speaks to those individuals who are looking for something that's going to make them feel that their thought process is the right process and the right thoughts. And they're going to be able to get it very easily. And I think as people maintain these silos on social media, before social media, you could get different 
uh, different ideas. You can read the paper or watch the news and you're going to get different opinions on different subjects. Now you can go into a rabbit hole and only like certain political commentators and stay in your silo and only hear things from one perspective. And that becomes your perspective. It makes it harder and harder to look at it from a broader lens. And I think that makes things more difficult. And I think that's where social media has been uh, a real issue. There's some wonderful things about social media, but I think this is one of the dark sides of social media for sure. You know, the uh, recent study by uh, the Anti-Defamation League reports that uh, anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. Uh, jumped uh, to a record level last year, up 36 percent from the year before. And as you said, they had been tra- trending downward. Uh, it's the third time in five years that reported episodes of anti-Semitism from the distribution of hate propaganda to threats, slurs, vandalism, assaults, etc., cetera, uh, were the most on record since uh, the ADL began tracking incidents uh, in 1979. And this certainly mirrors the ra- rise in hate crimes in the U.S., uh, according to FBI statistics as well. Uh, is there an easy answer here for uh, correlation? And I, I, I've got some follow-up questions here, but w- what's your opinion? Well, I think, you know, go back to the comment I made where it's, I think, the normalization. You know, when I when I was at the ADL, uh, almost t- starting at the ADL almost over, a little over 10 years ago, before I left for CSS, I remember my board member, my board chair saying to me, anti-Semitism is done. We don't need to focus on that. And the ADL had a two-part mission, stop the defamation of the Jewish people, and secure justice and fair treatment for all. And, and everyone was saying, focus on the second part, because anti-Semitism is not an issue. And you fast forward now, and I think it's a completely different situation for sure and i think that you know what's happened is when i started uh you know over 10 years ago at the edl if there was a swastika incident it was a big story if there was a swastika on someone's home or if there was a swastika on a synagogue that was a really really big story you know you fast forward 10 years that barely gets tweeted out that is something that will maybe just be reported as a regular incident you know a kid being called a kike in a school or there's a a teacher that, you know, says something anti-Semitic or school board member that does something that used to be a really, really big story. And that is really not even making the news anymore. And as you, and I even saw really the normalization of anti-Semitic assaults and hate in Brooklyn, where you started seeing regular assaults of Hasidic and, and, and Jews that were visibly Jewish in Brooklyn, that was starting off as a story. And then it just became what kind of normalized behavior. And also then after Pittsburgh, you know, everyone was really couldn't believe what happened in Pittsburgh, the massacre in Pittsburgh. I was on the ground during the active shooter in Jersey City. I was there the morning after looking at holes in, in, you know, in, in the kosher market and the yeshiva that were next door to it. And we know now that they were supposed to go into the yeshiva, which had a synagogue. And instead, they went into the kosher market by accident. Um, you know, I was there within a few hours after the stabbings in Muncie. And again, the, the amount of press and how the community responded to those things lessened and lessened until ne- and you had Poway in San Diego, Colleyville in, in Texas, the news cycle just spun out and it became again normalized. And I think that's where, where things are, are so, so different is how we're as a society accepting this kind of anti-Semitism in a way that we didn't a decade ago. And there's what's called a pyramid of hate. And the, and the, the tip of that is genocide, right? And that's when you see in communities where Jewish communities ultimately have had to deal with a ton of anti-Semitism and it creeps up, creeps up, creeps up to ultimately where where Jews are killed. Uh, I'm not saying we're we're at the levels where we are, you know, we're in Germany or, or during pre-Holocaust, but 
the trends that we're seeing are are really, really, really hard to swallow and really, really difficult. And I feel really bad for my children and what they're going to have to inherit because I don't think that the rhetoric is going to die down anytime soon because, again, that moderate middle is disappearing. You know, it, it's a this is a great segue to my next question. Your your friend Orrin Siegel, who's uh, the vice president of the ADL Center on Extremism, recently had an interview on Axios, uh, on Axios, and uh, he he said that the new ADL report lays bare that some data around uh, the data around why Jewish communities have been feeling so vulnerable recently, things like. Uh, public officials and social media influencers have helped normalize anti-Semitism by posting and repeating bigoted things. Uh, he cited Yee, uh, formerly known as Kanye West, but, uh, you know, a, a rose by any other name, uh, who who last year posted off uh, anti-Semitic uh, messages, anti-Semitic messages and a swastika to his 32 million Twitter followers. Um, more followers than there are Jews on earth. Uh, you know, has... Exactly. And then you look at, uh, you know, uh, the past administration, and I'm I'm not going to get political, but it's just a fact when, you know, we had the rally in in Charlottesville and, and, uh, you know, that uh, we had good people on both sides after the tragedy happened. Uh, We've had... uh, with one of the political parties, we've had known white supremacists and anti-Semites speaking at their uh, at their national political rallies as honored guests. Uh, has there been a failure in leadership around the country uh, among uh, some politicians and so-called celebrities that have, uh, again, normalized the hate and, and extracted the crazies from the woodwork? Yeah, I think it's on both sides. I think there's crazies on the far right and the far left, and they both have done uh, equal things. A lot of it, you know, on the left has come out of Israel and, and where they, they stand on Israel and that rhetoric that turns again, I think, anti-Semitic. And then you have on the far right, a lot of times, uh, you know, really in, in a lot of ways, almost okaying white supremacists. And I think Jews are stuck in the middle. We have these two distinct threats to us, right? You have the far left, which doesn't allow us into progressive spaces. The far left does not want us to see us as a minority. Uh, we try to go into progressive spaces, especially on college campuses, and we're we're knocked out of the box. You know, we're seen as white supremacists ourselves. We're seen as you know uh, this authoritarian group that 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 controls everything, and and, and we're not allowed in, and and that makes things very very difficult. And then you uh, on on the far right spaces, we are the traditional Henry Ford anti-Semitic canards. Uh, that we in stereotypes have been going on for for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, that we control the world and money and and everything else. And I think that what's hard is when you're stuck in the middle because you're you don't have a space either way. You're hated by the far right because you're hated by white supremacists for the traditional anti-Semitic stereotypes of canards. And you're hated by the far left because you're seen as a white supremacist and you're seen as someone who is an oppressor. And, and doesn't deserve to be in those spaces. And I think in, in, I think that's really, really difficult spot. Uh, for religious minority to have to be in. And I think that, that yes, I think uh, political officials are, are, are culpable in that. And I think that uh, leaders and in, in, in people that have voices, they don't understand the nuances. They don't understand the, the geopolitical components of this. They don't understand what they're talking about. They're repeating rhetoric that they're hearing, and they don't really fully take the time to understand or talk to uh, the Jewish community and the different levels of the Jewish community to have those conversations to understand the impact that their words have. And words matter. And when these people use their platform like a like a Kanye West with with 
you know, 32 million people or, or athletes or political officials, they carry a lot of weight. And it goes to me really back to the lone wolf. It may not make someone do something that's a more normal, you know, a, normal, more, a, a person that has, has all their capacities, you know, mentally, but you may have some people that are really on the verge of doing something uh, from a hate perspective and those kind of things, hearing it from people that they respect, again, lends the credibility to do something to, to the Jewish community. And that's super concerning. Excellent point. Excellent point. I, and just to kind of emphasize what you were saying uh, in that same Axios interview, uh, Oren Siegel <clears throat> said this, he said, anti-Semitism is not a right wing issue. It's not a left wing issue. It's a problem in in of, of itself. It's unique in that no matter where someone is on the ide- ideological spectrum, they're able to manipulate anti-Semitic tropes to make a point that they want to make. Sometimes it's not necessarily coming from an extreme left or an extreme right, but it's just an anti-Semite. It's, it's just an anti-Semite. So you've kind of explained that and that, that it doesn't matter. Uh, again, if you've got the microphone, uh, it, it's going to influence people. Uh, you know, so we're talking about all the statistics. We're talking about uh, all the rhetoric. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, what what are the steps that? Uh, and again, it's not just Jewish houses of worship. We've we've seen uh, Christian churches shot up and horrible acts of violence take place. We've seen mosques and Hindu temples uh, uh, desecrated. Uh, so, what are the steps any house of worship, but in particular then synagogues, Jewish community centers? Jewish daycare centers now have become the uh, the target of the day. It seems. How can they mitigate risk and uh, and and help keep their people safe? I, I think it's about having a security action plan. I think people need to take it seriously. It can't be something that's done, you know, halfway. They need to be bringing in local law enforcement to help do a threat assessment on their institution. Uh, I think people need to get trained in situational awareness. If you look at what took place in. Uh, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, with Dylan Roof, and we actually do a case study for our for our non-Jewish partners. And I started the first ever interfaith security council for New York City, and we actually have done case studies because this is, as you said, Stephen, is not just a Jewish problem. That you know, Dylan Roof was outside of that church multiple times, and if those congregants had been aware and had situational awareness training, there's a very good chance they would have seen him park outside of their church and looked at that and said, "That is not." making sense, we need to maybe call authorities or we need to think about doing something. So I think it's about getting trained in situational awareness. I think it's about hardening the target as well. And I think this is really hard for an American population to really, especially the American Jewish population, who really had a golden age of American Jewry post-Holocaust, which I think has ended, that we need to really think about not only hardening the target with bulletproof glass, but doing things that they do in Europe. If you're going to go to a synagogue in Europe, you have to get vetted in advance there are codes on the door. You're not getting in unless you have a particular passport that's been vetted in advance. They have to know you. Um, I think we have to just get more diligent. And I think it's it's really sad because we all want to open our doors to people. We want to be inclusive. We want to do all those things. But I think we have to also be aware of the security situation that we're in. And I think we need to understand that uh, that all of us are in danger and that we need to, tr- to, to tweak how we look at things in, 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 in the way that's going to make us all safer. I think, you know, there's a lot of grants that, that, you know, houses of worship can go and get money from the federal government, from the state government to harden their targets. It doesn't have to be a burden that's put on the congregants and having to make extra donations. There's a lot of money out there. 
And there's a lot of services, especially that local law enforcement will do for free. You know, and I think it's it's a serious thing that people need to do. But I think also congregants need to get trained. They need to get trained on situational awareness and how to protect themselves. Obviously, CSS, we take it a step further by putting volunteers in the perimeter and working with, with local law enforcement and off-duty police and, and private security uh, in the perimeter to harden the target. But certainly at a bare minimum, uh, congregants from every every faith need to get trained, I think, in minimally uh, situational awareness. So when they're going to their house of worship, they are trained. And once you're trained, you don't undo that training to look at why is that car in the parking lot there? Why is that thing out of place? Why is that back at maybe sitting by the front door looking for things? Why is that window open uh, in the back? Those are things that any congregant, regardless of their military or, or, or security background, can do something to help protect their congregation. And I think that's where uh, every congregation should at a minimum do that. Those two, those two things really harden the target and get their congregants trained. So with that being said, Evan, how uh, can people, uh, well, well, first of all, where, uh, where are there uh, branch organizations of CSS around the country right now? We're in 15 states around the country. Our, our, our biggest markets right now are, uh, are Boston, uh, the tri-state New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut area, Washington, D.C. We're in Southern Florida, the Miami area. Southern California, San Diego, Los Angeles, Seattle, Denver, uh, Atlanta. Those are our, our biggest markets right now. So if uh, communities around the country, Jewish communities around the country, and, and also, like you said, interfaith uh, uh, communities around the country, if they're interested in uh, talking with a CSS representative, if they're interested in getting a branch set up in their community, how would they go about doing that? See, so reach out to us at, at thecss.org. Uh, and, and you can fill in a form very quickly to to request information. Um, you know, we're primarily a Jewish organization working with synagogues. We have partners that work with uh, other faith organizations, and we're happy to help be that, uh, you know, that, that the, the connector and the bridge to helping them. Uh, you know, we take all of our, our, our brothers and sisters and, and other faiths seriously. And we, we also have partners, whether it's Secure Communities Network or others, that can also help. Um, and also, again, local law enforcement will do a lot of these things for them for free. I think there's a lot of resources on the local level that a lot of times religious institutions don't realize that they have uh, in place. And, and those police will will absolutely come out and do those assessments and do other trainings for them at zero cost. That's that's great. Well, I want to thank Evan Bernstein, uh, the CEO and National Director of the Community Security Service, uh, an American nonprofit organization that's providing security to the Jewish community uh, around the country. And as he said here, if there's interest in your community for, for their services, you can certainly contact him. Um, again, I, I appreciate you joining us on uh, Security DNA today, and uh, I'm sure you and I will talk more as the situation in Israel develops and uh, the I'm sure, uh, the ensuing uh, stories that are going to come out of that. So I look forward to uh, uh, gracing your doorstep again. With that, I'll remind our listeners uh, to join us uh, on the next podcast on Security DNA. Well, Steve, I want to thank you and Evan for this fantastic discussion about the alarming rise in violence against Jews and Jewish organizations in the U.S. Just a reminder to our audience, this podcast is for you so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anytime, anywhere. 
To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. You can also find our podcasts in our Security Frontline, Integrator Newswire, and Security Week e-newsletters. Of course, we'd like to get some feedback from you, our listeners, about topics you're interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to slasky, L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. This episode of the Security DNA Podcast was recorded and produced by John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. For Steve Lasky, Evan Bernstein, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.